Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, to be talking on a topic that is both uh, intellectually exciting and extremely relevant for our times. Um, my motivation is to change the discussion from an economic perspective uh, of climate change. Um, safe climate policy is generally seen as rather expensive in terms of monetary cost, in terms of welfare loss, and, and very concretely in terms of lost GDP growth. Uh, the, the feeling of expensiveness is supported by a lot of studies employing cost-benefit analysis. Um, I think it is important to realize that uh, many of these studies are very ambitious, uh, but probably overly ambitious, and they have received uh, in the last few years quite a, a lot of criticism. Um, I want to look at that criticism and convince you, first of all, that uh, we should not go further in that direction. Uh, I think, with many others, that the combination of certain characteristics of climate change, risk aversion that we, we humans have, uh, pervasive uncertainty, irreversibility, and potentially extreme climate events and trends, uh, that that suggests uh, we should focus on a precautionary principle. Uh, focus on safe rather than optimal climate policy. Optimal referring to the way cost-benefit analysis works, trying to find an optimal balance of costs, costs and benefits. Uh, there are studies that are less ambitious than cost-benefit analysis, that try to look at the cost of concrete safe policies. Uh, and these, these uh, studies show a variety of cost estimates. Uh, at the same time, you can say that these studies are less ambitious than CBA, cost-benefit analysis, but also quite ambitious, and a lot of their characteristics can be criticized. So I want to have a look at those studies. Uh, my ultimate aim is to say that either approach, cost-benefit analysis or cost assessment, uh, is ambitious if you want to do this in a very model-based, quantitative way. And I want to, to broaden uh, the view on, on the cost of climate policy by looking at a number of perspectives. And I think a lot of these perspectives are, are perspectives that you can immediately uh, uh, identify with. Uh, you don't need highbrow math, highbrow thinking. Some of these are very down to earth, but I think it's important that we, we put them on the table and, and look at them uh, in a systematic way. First of all, I, I want to motivate uh, my, my feeling that cost-benefit analysis has failed. Um, there is by now a lot of criticism, uh, and there is a paper along with this lecture, if you're interested, that documents all the details. Um, people with, with various backgrounds, most of them economists, have criticized climate cost-benefit analysis. Uh, and especially the combination of small probabilities and large impacts is regarded to pose a problem for cost-benefit analysis simply because a small probability times a high impact can lead to anything, can be a small value, a large value, a medium value. It's very sensitive. Um, and an expected cost-benefit analysis approach, which just multiplies probabilities times effects, may fall short in this respect. It's also good to realize that humans don't evaluate small probability large impact events or trends uh, in a cost-benefit analysis way, in an expected value way. Um, this is for mostly demonstrated by Kahneman and Tversky in a series of experiments and in a theory that's also been operationalized in mathematical sense, uh, prospect theory, which shows that people behave quite non-linearly in, re in, in responding to very small probabilities with large uh, effects. Uh, so the precautionary principle arises out of this, and it's interesting to refer to, to people that have supported cost-benefit analysis. Richard Toll is probably the most famous uh, Dutch citizen, I'm, I'm a Dutch person, uh, Dutch citizen um, who has expertise on, on climate economics. And he is uh, probably in Europe the most fervent uh, proponent of, of cost-benefit analysis application to climate change. But even in his work, you can find a, a lot of nuances and criticism of, of cost-benefit analysis. And thi this, I thought, was a, a particularly interesting statement. He says uh, that the... That the, the policy implication is that emission reduction should err on the ambitious side. And the, the implication is by looking at the data, and the data uh, that, that shows cost estimates shows that it's it strongly right skewed uh, in terms of its distribution. So if you look at, at damage costs, you'll see that you can find estimates of over 300 euros per ton 
uh, omitted CO2 emissions. Now, that may look like a high figure if you look at, at the mean values of 93 or the median values, which receive a lot of support from people like uh, Richard Toll, $14 uh, per, per ton C. Uh, but 300 is not so large if you take into account that it is based on extreme events. So these figures look maybe extreme, but they're, they're, they're quite fair and realistic in a way. Um, precaution is, is being supported by uh, an increasing number of people. Dietz et al., uh, in fact, the, the team behind the Stern report made interesting statements about it. Those who deny the importance of strong and early action should explicitly propose at least one of three arguments. There are no serious risks. We can adapt successfully to whatever comes our way and how big the change is. And the future is of little importance. The first is absurd, the second reckless, and the third unethical. It's a very clear statement, and, and I, I really support this, this view, and I think this is something that needs to be translated in good science and, and good social science and evaluation. It's interesting to note that environmental economists, and wh I'm wh one of those, have since long thought about uncertainty and ir irreversibility, and they have developed a specific theory to deal with that. Uh, Arrow and Fisher uh, laid the groundwork for that, uh, and this theory is called option value theory, and a related theory is quasi option theory. Um, but you see that in climate economics, where environmental economists have played a major role, they have not applied this, this kind of uh, theoretical thinking. And there are no good reasons for it. There are a few studies, but they have not received much attention. The idea of option value of climate policy might be interpreted uh, as a value of flexibility, ex postponing climate change until we know more. So a willingness also to, exp to spend a lot of money in the short run to prevent uh, the climate from going in a direction where we cannot return anymore. And that's, that's an option value. A quasi-option quasi value is a, a kind of value of information that you might receive in the future. Uh, and if we can learn more about climate change and all the impacts of climate change, then uh, perhaps we want to postpone uh, climate change until we understand it better. Uh, so then again, the, the value of having a strict policy, which is very costly, might be that we, we have more information in the future and then can make uh, ultimate decision. Maybe the decision to let climate change go on because ultimately it's not so bad or the climate system is maybe more stable than we think. I think that, that we will never have sufficient information, by the way, to make those, those decisions in the future. But nevertheless, it's good to realize the theoretical implications of theories <laughs> like option and quasi-option value theory. Uh, I should also mention a weakness of these theories, and that's the same weakness as cost-benefit analysis has, namely that they, they have a kind of expected value approach. They, they don't uh, allow for nonlinear treatment of probabilities and extreme events. There are several other fundamental uh, issues that you can raise in relation to climate CBA, for most uh, in relation to the social welfare function that is being assumed. Um, well, well the, the first point is, is another one. Population is endogenous to climate change. Climate change might affect uh, birth rates, death rates, um, and, and ultimately have an effect on, on population sizes in the future. And along with that, climate policies might change population and demography in the future. So uh, if you talk about uh, social welfare, if you talk about uh, climate policy, then this may have implications for population size, and that's ethically a sensitive issue, of course. Um, another issue in relation to social welfare is that discounted utilitarianism, uh, summing welfare and discounting that uh, as a normative criterion is very much employed in economics, but there's not really a good uh, ethical basis for it if you use it as a social evaluation criterion. And in the debate on sustainability, there has been uh, a lot written on this, uh, and, and a, a well-known alternative that has received a lot of support is, is the intergenerational maxi-min criterion uh, has, has been uh, motivated to some extent by the work of John Rawls on, on justice, intergenerational justice. Solov and Arrow, two Nobel Prize winners in economics, have uh, operationalized it in a mathematical sense. Uh, recently, I've seen a study that used a maximization of some quality of life, a human development indicator, to evaluate climate change. Um, 
I myself will propose a happiness approach. Uh, that's one of the perspectives I, I'll show later. Um, and if you think about precaution as an important approach, then a kind of uh, min-max regret approach. So you try to minimize the maximum regret. Uh, and that, that's uh, a very straightforward mathematical approach that you can use that's been also discussed a lot in, in environmental economics, but has not seen uh, application except for for one study, and I've discussed it myself in a qualitative way, but there's one quantitative study in 1999, which again didn't receive much attention. Uh, if you know something about uh, climate policy and, and economics, then of course you'll know that discounting is a much debated issue, discounting and the value of the discount rate. Uh, we know that cost-benefit analysis outcomes are very sensitive to the use of uh, the discount rate. Uh, because they involve long-term horizons. Uh, at the same time, there's much a disagreement about what is a correct discount rate value. Well, the combination of these two characteristics makes uh, it, it very difficult to conclude something from cost-benefit analysis. It can go in, in many directions. Uh, recently, the Stern Review revived the debate on discount rates and anything related to, to economics of climate change. Very good, I think. Uh, and if you look at that literature that has emerged in the last uh, last two years or three years, you'll see that uh, there is two, two kinds of approaches there. There is a group of economists uh, that support uh, a discount rate based on market interest rates. So looking at reality, kind of revealed preferences, look at what discount rate people really show in real market decisions, and, and that should be the basis. And there's a group of, of other people, economists and non-economists, that say that we should uh, select um, social discount rates on the basis of ethical arguments. Um, I, I, th I think that the case is the strongest for, for uh, an, an ethical choice, but it, it remains uh, a never-ending debate, and the debate has been uh, waged dur during many periods in history. My own view on discounting is that uh, there may be an erroneous analogy used here. We as individuals discount, and a fundamental reason for that is or may be that we are mortal. If we, with certainty, would know that we would live a uh, hundred years or fifty years from now, uh, we wouldn't discount so much as we do now. Now, if you look at uh, a society, you can say that the society is less mortal or even not mortal. And especially if we aim for sustainability, for sustainable societies, then we want societies that are not mortal. Uh, now, that means that the, those societies should maybe not discount. Um, so, so my view is that, that we should here approach maybe discounting at, at a very fundamental level, looking at what is the basis of transferring discounting to societies. Uh, there, ha there have been other arguments uh, used to, to argue in favor of uh, low discount rates. Weizmann did an interesting state of preference study among environmental economists and arrived at a long-term low discount rate. Uh, experiments uh, and theoretical uh, research uh, give support to hyperbolic discounting, saying that people uh, in the short run discount a lot, but in, in the long run use lower discount rates. Well, since we deal with long-term long issues in, in climate change, that might be an argument in favor of a low discount rate. Uh, <coughs> the next uh, point I want to make is that climate change excludes most important uh, extreme climate events that have been documented as uh, likely or, or possible uh, by natural scientists. And I'm not going to mention all these uh, because of the time, but uh, some, of the you, some of them you, you may know. Um, maybe the last one is an interesting one. There's now a whole, whole activity going on in natural sciences about the risk of acidification of the oceans and what it might have uh, for consequences uh, for marine life and, and maybe indirect effects for, for humans. It's a very uncertain issue. Uh, well, to, to cost account, uh, all these extreme changes is, is virtually impossible. You can make wild guesses, but it's not possible <coughs> to capture such extreme changes in cost-benefit terms. Um, and moreover, if such changes or some of these changes are, are abrupt, very, very rapid, then we will lack opportunities to respond to them. Uh, we will not be able to adapt to protect ourselves. And that means that the costs of the damage cost of these extreme events will be uh, extra high. 
my, my personal view is that the omission of these extreme events in most, most climate uh, cost-benefit analysis is, is really a, a severe omission, and it's, it's not really understandable, because why do we worry about climate change? Because of extreme events, <coughs> because of things that are out of control. We, don't, we should not see the climate problem as a problem of optimizing the temperature. Uh, it would be nice if we could do that, but we cannot so accurately control the climate system. So uh, optimal temperature uh, is, is not the objective. The objective should be to avoid extreme events. And I think with the climate cost-benefit analysis, we've moved too, moved too much in the direction of optimal choices. I mean, I, I like the idea of cost-benefit analysis and optimality, but there are limits to it, and I think we've reached a severe limit here. And, and in my view, you can conclude, on the basis of what I, I say here, that the, the, the current set of climate cost-benefit analysis and, and all the results that go along and all the implications that go along with it, you should not take those too seriously, even if the people are very famous economists. People like Nordhaus is, a, is really, I, I mean, I respect him as, as an economist and an intellectual, a very clever person, but I think he's gone too far in saying that with uh, simple climate cost-benefit analysis, you can draw so far-reaching conclusions. I think these authors should be much more modest in, in, their, uh, in selling their results. And especially Nordhaus has had a, a tremendous I impact. Uh, it, it is quite sure that Nordhaus work has had a lot of impact on the Bush administration in arguing against signing Kyoto. Because Nordhaus studies showed at the time that, uh, well, a severe climate policy was, was economically uh, not, not uh, supportable. <coughs> it's interesting to note here also that uh, Richard Tolle, who I mentioned already, um, lists in, in his last publications the many shortcomings of CBA. And at the same time, he has contributed a lot to that. Uh, and he also says that this field is in want for challengers. Uh, but what is interesting is he defends the conservative CBA estimates that he contributed to. And he was one of the most fierce attackers of the Stern Review. And the Stern Review is exactly one of those challengers. Uh, and I'll, I could say more about Stern. I, I, given time, I won't do that. Let, let me say one thing. Stern did a cost-benefit analysis, which attracted probably, m or which was the reason why the study attracted so much attention, because along with the cost-benefit analysis, they, they provided an estimate of potential cost of climate change up to 20% of GDP. That figure is difficult to interpret. There's not much to say about that figure, but in any case, they attracted attention with the cost-benefit analysis part of their study. But Stern... In, in his work and in his speeches has said very clearly that he thinks that the issue cannot be resolved alone by, by cost-benefit analysis. That is basically a risk analysis and a risk management problem. Uh, and, and he's very, very explicit about that. Uh, but I guess, I don't know, Stern maybe also thought, let's do a cost-benefit analysis because that's the only way to attract the attention. And he has proven his point, I think. I could go on. There are other shortcomings. I'm, I'm not <laughs> going, but I, I want to convince you really that cost-benefit analysis uh, is, is something that, that, that goes beyond its limits. Um, there is a, a neglect of human conflict that might arise due to, uh, as a result of, of climate change, because of scarcities of water, for instance, that, that would arise. Uh, Large-scale biodiversity loss. There are predictions that if climate change is extreme, that biodiversity will be lost at a up to 50% of, of the current amount of biodiversity. And this sounds ridiculous, extreme. But if you look at the studies, these are done by very serious scientists. You have to trust them. And, and if climate change is extreme, of course, climate zones change to such an extent that a lot of species will be driven in corners and then disappear. Uh, also, the effect of extreme climate change on human development, on human population and demography, something that's not really calculated in all these cost-benefit analysis. And these are the things, these are three things that we should worry about. Th these should motivate our concern for climate change and climate change analysis. Uh, then there are more specific things like many of the models suppose that there's immediate adaptation uh, because all the agents in many of the cost-benefit analysis and, and economic model studies are rational agents. There's neglect of impacts in the long run beyond 2100. A lot of damage costs for, for uh, developing countries have a weak basis just because there are no good, good quantitative data, uh, similar data to, to, to base the information on available. Uh, and this is problematic since developing countries will, will 
have to accept a large share of the damages and they cannot protect themselves very well. Uh, and a final issue which has received a lot of attention in the past is, is that human lives, losses to human lives uh, or, or all kinds of uh, well, health-related health impacts on humans are difficult, difficult to value, uh, especially since we have such an unequal uh, income distribution worldwide. And to compare lives in different countries or health impacts in different countries is very difficult. Uh, you, you end up with uh, looking at, at values of life that differ with a factor of 15 between rich and poor countries. Uh, an intermediate conclusion is that there are too many reasons for not having much confidence in cost-benefit analysis for climate policy. And let me be clear, I'm, I'm not against cost-benefit analysis at all. I'm very much in favor of applying cost-benefit analysis when you can, when time horizons are limited, when uncertainty is limited. I think then it can support rational decision-making. I would like to add here also that uh, another big problem in the past, asset rain, has been uh, approached also with a lot of evaluation tools, but cost-benefit analysis has not seen serious application to that. I, in fact, I couldn't find any study. Uh, the famous work, evaluation work on asset rain, is, was done by the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis, YASA. They developed their RAINS model, and that's a cost-effectiveness analysis. So there are safety levels of, of deposition of, of uh, SO2 and NOx that, that uh, soils and, and forests and, and lakes can, can accept. And from there on, the model starts calculating how many emissions can be accepted in different parts uh, for Europe. This was a model for Europe. But as, as far as I know, uh, acid rain hasn't been seriously approached with cost-benefit analysis. And you could argue that acid rain is a much more simple problem, a much simpler problem than, than climate change. Okay, let me go on to other types of studies, studies that try to assess the cost of safe climate policy. And here are a number of problems that you have to recognize immediately. First of all, the notion of policy cost is not very clear, since the policy scenario and the benchmark, what what do you compare it with are a matter of choice and surrounded by uncertainty. Uh, safeness is neither clear. I, I should apologize for the amount of information here. This just reflects my limited knowledge of some natural science issues, and therefore I want to be sure I say correct things. Um, and, and I think it's good to understand what is safe. And there is a lot of debate in, in natural sciences on this. I hope there are some natural scientists that might respond later on. First of all, it's good to know some basic data. Eh? The pre-industrial revolution concentration of CO2 uh, equivalent, so all the, all the... Now, this is only CO2, I think. It's, it's 280 uh, particles per million. Currently, we are at 385, and we're quickly approaching what is regarded by many people as safe, uh, the upper limit of safe concentrations, 450. Uh, the quicker we move to that, the, the quicker we lose cheap opportunities to, to stabilize at a safe level. Uh, beyond 450 is regarded as risky, but it is now realized that, that we're not going to realize that probably. We're, we're going to stabilize at least at 550 is, is what many experts now uh, say. And there are even people who say that we will end up at a much higher level. Uh, it's good to know what is the maximum reachable. I, I found a study that said that 2,000 particles per million is the maximum that we can reach if we burn all the, the available fossil fuels. But I'm not 100% sure if that includes really all the coal in the planet, because there's a lot of coal. Um, likely scenarios by two studies are 1,200 and 1,400 uh, particles per million, which is extremely high. Uh, of course, this assumes <coughs> all kinds of things about having climate policy and so on. So, but, but these are worrying figures. Another interesting issue which is being debated now is that IPCC might be possibly overly cautious in, in uh, defining the risks. Uh, one, one issue that might cloud uh, the, the, the current situation is the cooling due to aerosols in the atmosphere. And because of that, we might see only one-fourth of the potential temperature uh, rise that, that uh, the current level of CO2 uh, concentration uh, can support. There is a special issue of, of PNAS, the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the U.S., uh, on this issue. Uh, an important uncertainty about what is safe, uh, safe climate policy, is the residence time of CO2 in the atmosphere. 
Um, when I started writing on this, I, I, at a certain moment, tried to find how long CO2 stays in the atmosphere. And if you look in IPCC reports, you cannot find a clear statement on that. And that, that worried me a little bit. And then with some colleagues, uh, natural scientists, I tried to find suitable recent literature on that. And I found so, some good studies in top journals, and, and they suggested different things. It seems that there's uh, an updating and an increase of the, of the estimate of, of this resonance time of CO2 in the atmosphere in uh, recent articles. One study says that 75% of CO2 emissions have an average perturbation time of 1,800 years and a reminder a lifetime uh, above 5,000 years. And it's interesting to compare this what, with what is said in the IPCC report. There, the range is 5,200 years, if I'm correct. But they, they don't want to commit themselves too much. But these are much higher uh, temporal periods. Uh, Matthew and Caldera even argue that uh, the only way to stabilize atmospheric concentrations is to reduce uh, anthropogenic uh, emissions to zero. Anything above zero will not be able to stabilize CO2 in the atmosphere. And someone who is related to the Environmental Change Institute, I don't know if he's here, Schellenhuber, you know him? He, he wrote a very, very nice article in this special issue of PNAS and he said we are still left with a fair chance to hold the two degrees uh, Celsius temperature line yet the race between climate dynamics and climate policy will be a close one. The odds for avoiding dangerous anthropogenic interference may be improved by aerosol management, taking the warming components such as black carbon out first. So we need a very detailed carbon policy because aerosols, some, some aerosols will have different uh, effects warming, uh, cooling effects. Complex issue. But this makes it difficult for social scientists also to decide what we should focus on. And IPCC is a good reference, but it's always a bit lagging behind. Because uh, it has <coughs> to be careful, of course. Um, nevertheless, what I do here is I'll take some estimates of climate policy costs, uh, and IPCC has synthesized some of these. Um, and has focused on the stabilization range here. And the cost estimates uh, that result from that range from slightly negative to 4% of global income, GDP worldwide, you might say. There are various studies that, that go into the details of all, all these uh, policy, climate policy cost estimates. And there are even uh, now a number of meta-analysis, a technique that's very popular nowadays, meta-analysis of cost estimates. Um, and these studies sh show that, that it's difficult to compare, first of all, all these studies. I would have liked to present a table, but it doesn't offer any information because uh, the, the, the stabilization levels differ, the indicators of policy costs differ. For instance, some studies focus on compliance costs, some on car carbon price that can do the job of stabilizing, some focus on loss in GDP terms, uh, some have an equivalent variation, which means that they, they estimate the change in income that is consistent in welfare terms with the climate <coughs> policy. Very abstract idea that environmental economists like to use. Then there are system engineering, bottom-up, and general equilibrium uh, or economic growth, uh, top-down models, which, which have completely different mechanisms and, and also tend to be biased differently towards costs and benefits. Um, I don't want to go into too, too much detail, but it's good to, to understand how to evaluate the, these various uh, estimates, because my argument here is that we cannot trust too much the estimates from the quantitative models, and that we have to go beyond those quantifications. Um, there's a lot of biases in the results because of structural models characteristics. For instance, substitution options determine how, how flexible uh, responses can be to higher prices due to climate policy. Uh, technical progress comes out uh, as a crucial factor. Uh, with endogenous technical change or induced policy-induced technical change, you arrive at lower costs. Um, and knowledge spillovers across sectors may also have an impact. Then the design of climate policy matters, uh, the use or, of carbon tax revenues, if you have taxes, as an instrument, uh, as an impact? Do you recycle them in the most neutral way, or do you try to create a double dividend through reducing labor market taxes? Um, and finally, studies differ in terms of uh, market and non-market costs. 
effects on, on welfare that don't, don't run through markets may be relevant, and not all the studies take those into account. Okay, this is for me a reason. Uh, I've criticized the cost-benefit analysis. I've criticized the, the cost assessment studies to say we have to look with a broader uh, angle towards uh, the cost of climate policy. First of all, um, I've, I've looked at, at a certain order here of, of important perspectives, but I think this is a very important starting point, is to look for definite solutions for the climate problem. And you can think of many solutions, but I think the only convincing definite solution will be renewable energy. We can talk about energy efficiency, but I'm, I'm quite convinced that we cannot reach so much with energy efficiency, especially if we try to push energy efficiency to its limits. I think the rebound effects will be enormous. I think uh, it, it is most clear to focus on a definite solution, and renewable energy might be one. <laughs> then within uh, all, all the different options we have there, and there are quite a few, I, I choose solar PV. Uh, because it's a very direct translation of solar energy into electricity. Um, and, and let's look then at the learning curves that are available for solar PV. If you do that, you try to estimate on the basis of the learning curves, which capture the learning process in the past and try to translate that into the future, uh, you try to assess the cost of making solar PV electricity competitive, competitive with electricity derived from fossil fuels, um, then the best estimate is that we need to invest worldwide $60 billion. Now, the, I have to admit that <coughs> such a, an extrapolation is very sensitive to parameters. If you uh, take a, a reasonable uncertainty range into account, then this translates into a range of 30 to 300 billion. These are, are large sums of money. This also, it's good to say what, what is exactly the meaning of these figures. It's a subsidy you need over the cost of fossil fuels. Yeah, so it's an extra cost. So it's not the total cost, but it's the cost we need to, to put in as a society in one way or another. Uh, it might be an overestimation because these studies were done before fossil fuel prices were as high as they are now. And, of course, electricity prices are higher, which is attractive for uh, solar PV electricity to become uh, competitive. Uh, we have another technology that you might uh, include, but I haven't found good learning curves for those. But there is a technique, concentrated solar heat power, which is simpler. It translates solar heat in, in electricity. And, and it has great potential, I think. Uh, but okay, I couldn't find good data on that. Can I ask, um, yes. What yeah. are you assuming about the costs of moving down the learning curve, if anything? Or is that ignored? You mean the cost of public investments, uh, infrastructure investment subsidies? Uh, this, is, yeah. this, this is basically a, an R&D plus investment cost. I mean, the learning curve is a broad concept. <laughs> I could uh, give a lecture on learning curves because it's a complex issue. And one learning curve, so there is a lot in it. And, and you could debate it, like anything. So those costs are in there? The there cost is of moving down the learning curve? Yeah, the R&D well to move well. down, yeah. Plus, but also the learning by just, the learning curve basically says, how does the cost per unit change if I invest more in... in uh, applications. It's really applying uh, the technology. So you could plot megawatt uh, solar PV against the cost. In fact, that, that's what the learning curve shows. The yeah. cost of power must be really cheap coming out of that, which is, I guess, what you're going to say. Well, th there is something, but okay, let, let me finish, and then at the end you'll see the, the whole picture, yeah? Um, just to motivate my solar PV uh, a little bit more, there is no problem-free renewable resource, I think. Wind turbines have a lot of problems. They're not very effective. Water power has problems. Biofuels, well, we know all the debate about that. Um, I, so for that reason, I, I, I like to focus on solar PV because ultimately these other technologies indirectly use also solar energy, and solar PV is a direct translation. Um, I should say that uh, if you look at, at the energy return on investment, I don't know a term that maybe some of you may know, how much energy do you have to put in a technology to get a certain amount of energy out? For instance, the ROE is it's discussed even for some biofuels where it's even larger than one. So imagine. 
Uh, but for solar PV, it is in the order of magnitude of four. And if you take fossil fuels, fossil fuels were at the beginning of the century, 20th century, they were like uh, 70, and now they're at between 30 and 50, depending on what you look at. Uh, the difference is large. It's a factor 10. You cannot overcome that inherent difference in properties of fossil fuels and solar PV. We have to realize that there are limits. It might mean, for instance, that in order to make these technologies large scale, we need to, to use a lot of labor a lot of labor population needs to go in those energy technologies, and that's a cost. But there's no way around it. We have to realize fossil fuel is beautiful in terms of its energy intensity. There's no way around it. Um, okay, let me not say too much on this now. I cannot, cannot say everything. I have 14 perspectives. I will present eight in detail, and the others I'll mention because I have too much for one lecture, I know. Uh, second issue which I think is important is to, to normalize the global climate cost by OECD GDP. I think the rich countries have a huge responsibility for two reasons. They've contributed a lot to CO2 concentrations that we, we see now, historically. And also they are rich. They can, we can afford. We're so rich, we can afford. We can afford to talk about this. It's a luxury. We can afford also to pay for it. And I have an extra argument later to, to support this point. Um, if you look at, at so if I take again the solar PV investment, that, that both the middle estimate and the range, and I divide it by OECD GDP, and I do this over 10 years, so I think I assume that we over 10 years do this whole investment in solar PV, and after 10 years we have competitive uh, electricity prices coming from out of solar PV, then the investment in relative terms is only 0.017% of OECD GDP. Nothing to worry about, I would say. Hmm? And the uncertainty range is a little bit, well, on the left side it's smaller, on the right-hand side it's still far below 1%. For me, that's a reason to say, is that really something to worry about? No. That we can handle. If the policy cost range of IPCC is used, it's a different matter, because that was the range. I, I used 1% to 4%, but it was negative to 4%, but I just used 1% to 4%, because the 1% is used a lot as well. So the... the the number one, you'll, you'll come across a lot. 1% of GDP is the cost of climate policy. That's what you find if you would do a study, a meta-analysis of all the studies, you'll find that as, as the median. Um, well, then it's much higher. And then the cost to the OECD for the first 10 years, and I would assume we would still be able to get uh, PV at this lower level, so PV could take over after 10 years. But if for 10 years we would have to accept the higher range cost estimate of IPCC, we would end up with 7% of GDP. That's a lot. With the low-end estimate, we would end up with 1.8%. So uh, the, what I do here is I take the cost of GDP at the world level, and I only charge it to the OECD countries. That's why the 1% to 4% becomes 1.8% to 7%. Yeah? And OECD, uh, well, I, the calculations are in the paper. OECD li has like 60% of all world income, I think, now. Uh, it's consistent with some, some proposals. Uh, Christian Azar, who I respect a lot, a very good writer on climate uh, policy, he's a natural scientist but understands economics a lot, and he has a fresh perspective on it also. He has a, a nice paper in which he says we should just enter a decade of experimentation with low-carbon technologies and, and accept the cost. We have to do it now. We ha don't have the luxury to wait. Well, these high figures illustrate that a little bit. So there is a risk we will have high costs. Uh, of course, these are averages I take. I could also take a more subtle approach and say we, we allocate cost in proportion to country income within the OECD. The rich OECD countries have to pay more. The, 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 but okay, what, what will happen is that some countries will face <coughs> even higher costs, some countries will fa face a lower cost. I don't think the argument becomes really different. Then there is another argument which is related to the work by, again, Christian Azar, uh, together with Stefan Schneider. Um, Stephen Schneider, the, the editor of Climatic Change, uh, they had the argument that um, we are becoming so rich in the next 100 years that the total climate cost is nothing. And this graph of them shows that. So with climate policy, and there's different stabilization levels, and the lowest stabilization level is, of course, the, the most expensive, you will shift down the GDP curve a little bit. So this is calculating the cost in GDP terms. And you can hardly see the difference. And there, what I thought was conceptually interesting about their studies is that they say you will reach the same GDP 
not in 100 years, but in 103 years or in 104 years. Simply said, if you look again at, at the cost, I use their cost estimates, and they're not co entirely consistent with what I showed before, but just th they talk about <coughs> 1 to 20 trillion US dollars over the, the whole period that we have to invest in climate uh, policy. That is 0.5 to 10% of GDP at the end of the period. Because at the end of the period, you have a huge income. If you have 2% growth, your income will be 10 times, well, seven times as high as I calculate here after 100 years. Um, it means a delay of one, one quarter of a year to five years, roughly. And their argument is, do people really worry about it then? Would they even notice if they're so rich? Then comes an, uh, an argument that, well, maybe this is, for me, the most important argument. I think, ultimately, we should not evaluate climate policy in terms of costs or benefits, but in terms of happiness. I mean, I, I'm also a fervent opponent of GDP. I've written an article once which was called Abolish GDP. And I think a good economist should say that GDP is just not a good indicator and it's being misused. And it's being misused in climate policy analysis. And that's a pity. We should focus on real important indicators. Happiness is such an indicator. It's difficult to do it empirically, but it's interesting to look through the arguments. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about the happiness literature. It's, it's quite booming now. If you look at, at the mainstream journals, you'll find almost every issue an article about uh, uh, the last issue of the Journal of Economic Behavior and Organization, for instance, is, is an article on, on happiness. Um, stylized facts coming out of that literature. Well, first of all, that literature respects uh, subjective opinions on happiness. So who is the best judge of happiness? The person itself. They, they, they say we don't need objective indicators of happiness. We don't need objective economic indicators only. It's interesting to compare those things, but we need to respect subjective indicators. This is a very democratic approach. If, if you believe in democracy, you believe also in this approach. Let people decide themselves what they think is important. What comes out as stylized facts is that GDP is not a good measure. Income is not a good measure of happiness. Uh, it's, it's a cost of our, of our market activity, it's not a benefit. People like Daly and Mission in the 60s, the cost of economic growth, a famous critique of, of growth, uh, also recognized it. Um, <coughs> happiness and, uh, or subjective well-being, as it's called in economics, and, and other indicators like corrected GDPs, there's a famous indicator by Herman uh, Daly, the, the the ESEF, the Index of Sustainable Economic Welfare, which corrects for various imperfections of GDP and then says that whereas GDP has grown for many rich countries, the, the, the better indicator of welfare has stabilized. And this is uh, done for many countries and the same patterns for the rich countries are found. You can criticize the corrected indicator. It's not perfect. But if I would have to choose, it's easy. I choose the corrected indicator. And I think this is also what many people feel. You get more income, more spending power, but does it make us really happy? Do you really think that our parents were so much unhappier, except for individual cases, depending on the circumstances, but in general, than we are, um, or were we less happy 10 years ago? These, these are relevant questions in this respect, and uh, happiness research tries to get a grip on that. Um, the Easterlin paradox, it's famously known. Why don't we get happier even if our incomes uh, rise? Uh, there are a few important uh, characteristics discovered there. People seek for status, are sensitive to status, but that's a zero-sum rivalry game. We cannot all be happier in status. Uh, status is a real scarce good. If you have status, I don't have it, and vice versa. You cannot have the status of everybody increase. Adaptation, people adapt. It's also interesting. To a higher income, you adapt. In the beginning, you're happy for a second, for a, for a minute, for an hour, for a day but it, it fades away. And we all know that. I like an income rise. I've, I've always liked that. And then I adapt in no time, and it's normal. And then uh, this research shows that income can be important in certain stages of life, but some factors are much more dominant. Uh, and personality characteristics are extremely important. If you're an optimistic person, you're happy. And usually you make a lot of money also then, because you're successful in life. So the rever there's a reversal of the causality. That's also interesting. We have a saying in Dutch, rich makes happy. But some of the study shows that happy makes rich. Because happy is derived from, from optimistic attitude. Um, well, I, I can here present two, two 
basic insights that I, I derive from this literature for climate policy. Less GDP growth due to stringent climate policy translates into smaller loss in happiness terms, as GDP growth in rich countries does not or hardly raise happiness. So we should not worry so much about climate policy. It, it will not harm our happiness. It may harm our GDP a little bit, but our happiness will not so much be harmed. Moreover, the second point, the impact of climate change, no climate policy on GDP underestimates the impact on happiness, especially because many non-market effects are excluded, and especially because many of those effects will be in poor countries, will affect happiness of people severely. Is the relationship linear in the sense that, you know, uh, even if you accept the argument that increasing income uh, does not lead to a proportionate increase in happiness, but then decrease in income uh, results that's an, you mean an that's an interesting one. Well, it's it's known that people don't like uh, income decreases. So that that's, that has to do with the adaptation also. Yeah. And also prospect theory has, has developed explanations for that. We are very much accustomed. We are also more risk-seeking in losses than in gains because we want to avoid losses. So we're ver very asymmetric in, in looking at gains and losses, which is also not consistent with how cost-benefit analysis treats gains and losses in a way. Yeah. Um, one provision here might be to say, okay, if people adapt, they can also adapt to climate change, you know? But will they be able to adapt to extreme climate change? And that, that's then, I think, uh, the sensitive issue here. Uh, another issue which is very down to earth, and I think maybe you, while drinking a beer, have done it already, but compare uh, expenses of, of climate policy with <coughs> other expenses. And I have three here, the Iraq war, the financial crisis, and military research. If you look at the Iraq war and, and you compare the cost of the Iraq war, which uh, Handley, uh, Stieglitz and co-author co have recently done, and they've estimated that the Iraq war only for the U.S. has cost about 3,000 billion, 3 trillion uh, dollars. That's approximating the cost of the Second World War, which was f five. So it's 60% it's, it's already of that. It's incredible, but it's true. Um, and if you just look at... This, again, this solar PV scenario I, I showed, then the cost will be 2% only of that, 2%. And the uncertainty range will be 1% to 6%. Uh, so it's nothing, really. And the Iraq war never was submitted to any cost-benefit analysis in advance. <laughs> but that's how it goes. That, that's interesting. There, there is an inter I found an interesting article that, that is also mentioned in my paper which argues that economic arguments are neglected in decisions about war, and that's a pity, that's stupid, because you wouldn't go to war. Someone said we could have bribed the whole Saddam Hussein family with tens of billions of dollars and still make money, you know? And, and they would have gone away without, with peace, and we could have given a lot of money to the Iraq people. It's, it's a pity, indeed. No, as an economist, you should say that's a pity, really. It's, it's, it hurts to think about it. The other thing is the financial crisis. If you see how quickly governments have responded to give large sums of money or reserve large sums of money, it's not all expenditures or not yet expenditures, but still, uh, lots of money. My, my very, very rough guess is that now they've, they've already committed or set aside reserve two trillion worldwide. I mean, if you believe the figures. I mean, the US immediately came with a proposal of $700 billion. Uh, it, 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 I don't have a good calculation for this, but it's an order of magnitude. You see that it's, it's close to the three trillion of the, of the Iraq war. It's quite interesting. And it's, the comparison with climate change is also interesting for the reason that the, the financial crisis is, an, is a risk. And we, we don't do cost-benefit analysis. We just try to, to safeguard the situation. With climate change now has so many information that, that could be put in the same corner. So it's interesting to compare. And the final comparison is with military research. Uh, if you talk about PV, it's about talking about research and development. Um, military research uh, receives a lot of uh, funding internationally. Uh, the estimates are that it receives 140 uh, billion dollars worldwide, and the U.S. already uh, well, the, more than half is, is in the U.S. Um, if you compare that with a 60 billion central estimate for, for solar PV then in one year we could pay it. If, if you spread solar PV over 10 years, it would cost only 5% of world expenditures on military research in the same period. 5% is nothing. And some of that military research is used to protect our oil interests also. So th this could be even argued to fit very well under the heading of military research, safeguarding our, our, ourselves. So.
It's also interesting to note that in two years, the world spends 300 billion on military research. This is the high-end estimate. If, if, if sort of if he becomes turns out to be more expensive. And finally, an interesting note is that private civilian spending in firms is estimated to be roughly 10 times the expenditures in global military R&D. So if you would relate uh, the cost of solar PV to that, you would only have half a percent of investment. That is nothing, half a percent. Um, well, something that has received uh, attention in the literature uh, leads to the next perspective. That's the idea of ancillary benefits or co-benefits. So if you invest in climate policy, uh, climate protection, then you will have other benefits. One that, that received concrete attention in quantitative studies is that we also reduce emissions of acidifying substances, NOx and SO2. Um, something that's difficult to quantify is avoidance of human conflict due to climate change. Some of the things I, I really already mentioned, biodiversity loss. Um, also, the whole energy problem, uh, energy sh price shocks uh, due to the oil peak we're reaching, uh, reducing energy scarcity or, or energy s enhancing energy security. Uh, adaptation options may improve due to mitigation activities. If you, for, for, if you do forestation to capture CO2, at the same time you create protection against flooding or winds, which may be the result of climate change. And then shifting taxes from labor to environment may also create employment benefits, the double dividends that, that well, have been debated, but there is some support for that, both empirically and theoretically. Um, so that there is a lot of ancillary benefits that are not in, in the, the studies uh, taken into account. So you should discount the cost for this, but then I, I admit you go to the cost-benefit type of analysis, of course. Um, okay. That studies have been done, by the way, to look at the, the ancillary benefits in, re in relation to energy markets and energy security. For instance, the social cost of, to the U.S. of, of the, o, uh, the, the, the OPEC cartel have been calculated in the past, where three, four types of categories of costs were identified. Wealth transfer to OPEC, eh, because OPEC has, has, has the power to raise the price above uh, the, the fair market price. The cost of keeping strategic petroleum reserves. Uh, total G GDP losses because of, of prices that were unstable and military costs to protect. You can debate the, these costs a little bit, I guess, but it's interesting that, that quite large sums of money result as a, as a result of that. Um, the next perspective is about behavior, learning, substitution. It's very difficult to capture all the richness of, of human behavior and how we can adapt and how we can learn. And it may be a reason for overestimating the cost of climate policy. Uh, and and I, I don't want to talk about too many details. I think I've said close to enough. But I think what is missing in many of the studies in this field is a good recognition of bounded rationality, behavioral economics. Uh, there's a small revolution occurring in economics. And I think we can understand some of the behavior of people with regard to energy, for instance, much better with bounded rationality models than with rational agent models. Uh, there is a, a large literature, for instance, on the energy gap. Uh, and, and also, in, both in explaining the cost of climate policy and in giving it good shape, the, choosing the instruments, we need to understand much better how humans respond. Uh, energy is, is, is different from many other goods. You, it's difficult, for instance, to make electricity, renewable electricity, sexy. Electricity for people is the same, whether it's renewable or not. It comes out of, uh, out of the wall, and, and you don't see any difference. It, that makes it difficult to sell. And we have to, to think good about that, I think. So let me not say too much on this. This, I think, is an interesting perspective, too. <coughs> I would argue that the current cost of energy is fairly low. And it's a difficult time to say it when the energy price has risen, I, I, I realize. So I, I would have better said this three years ago. But nevertheless, look, look at some interesting facts here. A uh, very nice study published in Energy Policy by Fouquet and Pearson looked, did a lot of data mining and found out that the cost of light uh, in 2000 was one divided by 3,000, that of its 1,800 value. In the same time, uh, income or spending power increased 15-fold. And that means that, that yeah, people could spend much more on, on uh, light, but they could also spend much more on other things. And the share uh, for light services dropped with a factor of five, to nine, 5 divided by 9. It's not so much in fact, uh, because we spend much more on energy now, on, on light now. If you look at energy intensity at the macro level, at the world level, it dropped since the 1970s by more than 30%. Uh, energy intensity is energy input 
divided by monetary output. Um, for me, the most important of, of the sub-arguments here is the green one. If you look at how much we pay out of our total income worldwide for energy, then that has been below 10% or around 10%. Now, you could say that's a lot. It's difficult to find a benchmark. But if you realize that energy is one of the fundamental inputs to anything we do, is 10% now really so much? I mean, we are used to it. Fine, we had our oil to make it cheap. But to say that it's a fair price if it's one of the, well, wh what are the fundamental inputs to, to what we do? Energy and materials. For energy, we pay 10%. I don't think if we spend 90% on other things, I don't think that counts as, maybe there's something to do about interpreting this figure. I don't know, I would be open to that. But to me, it seems on face value quite low. Another argument to sharp recent increase in the oil price, which we've seen did not give rise to social uproar. There was resistance, there was discussion, but we, we haven't seen social uproar. I think people can handle quite some in energy increases still. Um, and the cost of oil was recently, until recently, very low. And that's well, a detailed argument. I'm not going to repeat it here. You can read it. But my general message here is that I think we, we can handle the e economy. Humans can handle quite some uh, energy cost rises where I should admit that income distribution is a matter of attention. Eh? Uh, of course, people at the low end of the income scale, they sh should have support there if energy costs rise uh, a lot. Of course, energy costs translate in a complex way to the to product cost, and, and some luxury goods will maybe ver be very sensitive and maybe less affordable. That should not necessarily be a problem. I mean, travel by air is increasing a lot in Europe. We're moving in. in towards the, the, the averages of the US, where people fly on average, I believe, six times per year. Um, that's not something we need to focus on. Uh, we need to aim for, I think. Uh, so maybe some goods should be just very expensive and luxury. Uh, you should realize that if the price of fossil fuels goes up, by the way, that, of course, renewables will become more expensive because their production is based entirely on fossil fuels. So it will not be that easy to create a, a large gap by increasing the <coughs> fossil fuel price. Okay, I've said a lot, I realize that, and I still have a few other perspectives, uh, but I'm not going to talk in detail about these. Um, so I'm going to mention them here. Um, two of them, international cooperation agreements and a lack of insurance, really mean that, that the conditions are not <laughs> such that we can respond very well to, to climate change. I think we need also to do a lot about insurance to make sure that risks that we will be facing due to climate change will be translated well in all kinds of risky activities, and people have to pay for that. Living in coastal zones, new house construction and so on, should be paid the correct price there, and it's not being translated right now. For countries like the Netherlands, it's very important. But, but I mean, half of the po world population lives in coastal zones, so it's, it's, it's a general problem. Um, I've talked an hour, so I'm going to go to my conclusions. Um, Cost-benefit <coughs> analysis of climate change is overly ambitious. I've, I've tried to argue that. And I repeat again, it has never been done for acid rain. And th that should make us think, why not? <coughs> acid rain has been focused on, has been approached with, with cost-effectiveness analysis. Why is that? It, it's, I think climate change is a much more difficult problem, much more complex problem than acid rain. You might argue acid rain is a complex problem already, but climate change is much, much more complex. Acid rain also is a, a local problem. Europe could address its own acid rain problem, and the US, these were independent acid rain problems. It's not a global problem. I think that economists performing climate CBAs should be modest when providing policy advice, and I think they haven't done that. Uh, if I read the work of Nordhaus, it's extremely good quality, but I don't read modesty there, not enough. If I read Richard Toll, very clever person from my country, the main climate economist from my country, does very good work, recognizes the shortcomings of climate change in his last papers. You should read him. I mean, he can write it better down than I do. He's really an expert. But he ha doesn't have the modesty. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm gonna, when I've, I just finished my paper, he will be the first one who can give comments to it. Um, but I think it's important to, to, to start a debate with these economists. I mean, they did very good work, and I, they meant well, but their models are toy models. They shouldn't influence our decisions too much yet, I think. It's better to focus on, 
our research, I think, on, on the cost of safe climate policy. Also from a monetary perspective, we have limited funds. I think it's much better to do good cost uh, studies and, and to look for, for good solutions than rather do another cost-benefit analysis. I don't think we learn much from that. Uh, and I think my perspectives provide a lot of reasons to think that we could be optimistic about those costs. And there are many pitfalls. There are also many assumptions in my presentation. I admit that immediately. I want to, to present something that's good for, that starts a discussion. And I think we need more research. I think we would, would we could use research on happiness and climate change. Um, we could use research on the, the fair cost of energy. What is a good cost of energy? How do you judge that? And climate policy effects under bounded rationality is something I think we, we need to pay more attention to. We need to pay more attention to translating bounded rationality towards all kinds of issues in environmental science and environmental economics. But climate is, I think, the most urgent case of attention anyway. So I would like to stop here and uh, invite you to uh, raise questions. Thank you.